Welcome to the Capital Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the host of the podcast that looks at coastal policy from Washington, D.C. with the people who are making and influencing that policy. Today's podcast is a deep dive look into the Coastal States Organization and American Shore and Beach Preservation Association's joint policy on beach and inlet management. This is a fairly lengthy look at that policy. We have broadcast different sections of this podcast individually, and this is a compilation. We are looking at each of the five parts of that policy, and those are sediment management, permitting, funding, development, and research. And this really drives a significant portion of both Coastal States Organization, CSO, and American Shore and Beach Preservation Association's ASBPA's work. Uh, I'm really excited today to be joined by two of my closest colleagues, Rachel Keelan, who is the Federal Affairs Director for Coastal States Organization, and Tony Pratt, who is the President of ASBPA. We, we did record these sections individually, and we are putting them together into this podcast. And I'm, I'm particularly excited about this podcast because it was recorded and represents really a transition in my career. Uh, I had spent the previous six years as the executive director of ASBPA, and I recently started as the executive director of Coastal States Organization. So these two organizations came together, put this policy together, and I have had the opportunity to work on it as both a, a staffer for ASBPA and a staffer for Coastal States. A really interesting insight maybe into my career, but also into some of the good work that's happening in Washington, D.C. on coastal policy. It's a fairly extensive dive into this policy. If you are interested in, in one section in particular, I encourage you to go to wherever you get your ASPN podcasts and listen to that section individually. Um, but I hope you enjoy. Uh, before we get going, do want to take a few minutes to hear from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Great. Well, let's let's start talking about sediment management. So this is a... a um a uh, beach and inlet management policy document that ASBPA and CSO put together. Again, it's five parts. The first section deals um, exclusively with sediment management, regional sediment management, uh, beneficial use of dredge material. And obviously the challenge that we are trying to address with this is there is a sediment crisis facing our nation, at least facing our coastlines. Um, we don't have enough sediment to keep up with sea level rise. Uh, we have mismanaged sediment over the past hundred years. We aren't, um, sediment is being removed from places where it's not needed, but it's not necessarily being put in places where it is needed. And while the Army Corps has done a lot of, uh, has put a lot of thinking and a lot of effort into trying to make sure we are managing sediment better, it is still uh, still a challenge. So, um, Rachel, maybe I'll turn it to you uh, to kick off. If you want to give sort of a high-level overview of this section, and then we'll dive into some of the specific bullets and the specific policy recommendations. So, sort of what does this what does this policy try to do at large? Great. Thanks, Derek. So this section really centers around recognizing that sediment is an important resource rather than a waste material. 
the recommendation um, under this section will ensure that we understand the avail availability of this resource and provide a framework to promote the beneficial use of sediment from dredge projects for coastal protection and restoration. Thanks. It's, it is sort of one of the fundamental challenges of, of managing a coastline is that it, the coastline moves, sediment moves, right? These aren't, you know, maybe there's some rocky shorelines, but uh, a lot of us deal with uh, sand shorelines or, or wetland shorelines, and they are not stagnant. You know, you might go there and, and think they doesn't look like they're moving, but um, over multiple years and certainly over geologic time, they're always, they're always shifting. And so we need to figure out how we can maintain them in a way that both uh, supports multiple uses, um, but also is not, you know, counter to what nature is trying to do. Um, this section has a lot of, uh, of, of all the policies that we put together. This one probably has the most um, items that we recommended, that the two organizations recommended. We have six different bullets, each of which have some sub-bullets. And so we're going to dive into a couple specific ones today. And if you're interested, if this piques your curiosity, uh, you can certainly go to ASBPA or CSO's website to find out more. Uh, and I think I'll turn the first one to Tony and have him sort of explain this. Tony Pratt is the president of ASBPA, but was for... Um, a long time. He was the administrator of, of waterways and shorelines for the state of Delaware. I might have that specifically, the, the technical title wrong, but uh, has a lot of experience in doing sediment management um, from a state perspective. So th this one is, the first one we're going to be talking about is to uh, implement a national policy on regional sediment management, which we sometimes call RSM and beneficial use of dredge material, sometimes used as an acronym BUDM. Um, and so the, the, the specific thing we want to talk about is uh, establishing ASPPA and CSO recommend establishing a new national understanding of the federal standard, where as part of the Army Corps' determination of the least cost alternative for the disposal of dredge material, the Army Corps looks at an economic valuation, including long-term costs and costs avoided of coastal sediment for public benefits. So that's a little technical, um, but Tony, maybe you can jump in and sort of explain, maybe briefly explain the federal standard and why we feel like it's important that the core is valuing or, or determining the economic value of the full range of benefits for coastal sediment. Sure, Derek, thank you. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with you again this morning and, and with Rachel. Um, so the the issue, as Rachel has framed it, is, is, is exactly that, that sediments are dynamic. They're an important attribute for the coast. Uh, interestingly enough, within the service of sediment management, and that's what the Corps of Engineers and many state organizations do, there is this conundrum or this contradiction in that uh, we have two, two significant problems. One problem is sediment deprivation or sediment reduction, which is erosion by another term, and the other is sediment deposition or sediment surpluses. And interestingly enough, over the decades that have led up to, to current thinking, there has been a big disconnect between the management of the two. Dealing with sediment uh, deficiencies, erosion problems, has been one house of the core, and usually very much so in the states. Uh, dealing with the surpluses, which is clogging uh, channels which are built for navigation, uh, is, is another part of the house and another budgeting line. And I say all that because it really reads, leads into the regional approach that's being advocated now, looking at the holistic system of a coastal shed, watershed or sediment shed, where sediments flow, where sediments are, are eventually going to reside. Uh, it makes a lot of sense where you have a sediment uh, surplus, a clogged channel, a channel that doesn't meet its navigational 
uh, design and you need to remove that sediment, that you should put it somewhere close by where there's a sediment deficiency. Now, that, that makes common sense, but it's been difficult to overcome that common sense in policy and in funding over the years. So the beneficial use of dredge material and regional sediment management are a relatively new and, and very popular among coastal managers, uh, coastal states organization, ASBPA members. It's very popular in the concept of we're finally marrying up these two issues that need to be managed and that we can possibly break through the barriers that have prohibited the use of sediment as a resource, as, as Rachel has has so well uh, identified it, it is a resource and it, it helps guard against sea level rise and sediment movement over the long term. So uh, this is looking at a way to change what's called the federal standard, which is again, based on the fact that most navigation works are underfunded. The navigation managers have tried to stretch their dollars as far as possible and they found the most uh, cost, the lowest cost possible ways to get rid of the sediment that's dredged out. If you're benefiting another part of the sediment chain, uh, the, the sediment deficit side, you're actually gratifying and satisfying another budgeting unit altogether. So just getting away from the least cost option and looking at it in a valuation uh, mindset of what, what values you have gained by putting it in a better place at a little bit higher cost, it's marrying those two budget units very effectively and looks at, we have never looked very clearly at what the management costs and the environmental costs of disposal sites, especially underwater disposal sites. Delaware has main channel and its disposal site for the sandy material that comes out is on the bottom of Delaware Bay. And there's a cost related to that, which we've never ever put a, a monetary number onto. So there are costs that have not been discovered very well and uh, benefits that have not been discovered. So the benefit cost analysis needs to be broadened. And that's what we're advocating here. I think that's great. Great, Tony. Uh, you know, I think what you said is really important is the federal standard was created to support efficient projects, right? We want to make sure that the taxpayer dollar that's going towards dredging uh, ports for commerce purposes is being spent efficiently. We want to make sure that we're not wasting money. Um, but in the process of doing that, they've sort of divided up the where the sand comes from and where the sand goes. Uh, and so I think in some ways we're almost trying to think about rather than doing the least cost alternative, it's sort of the best cost alternative. But in order to determine best cost, you need to evaluate um, and, and understand where the the benefits uh, the benefits are. So, um, and, and that, that, that's within the strategic uh, uh, area that you're working in. I think we have to combine strategic areas a little bit better. Right, right. Um, inlets and beaches are very, very, very interrelated in a sort of a natural setting. You know, many beaches get their sand, you know, if humans weren't around, many beaches would get their sand from uh, from those inlets and channels and rivers. And so we want to try to mimic that as best as possible. Um, Rachel, I want to I get your take on this, but I actually think we can bring up the next point and, and you can sort of build into this. Um, one of the other bullets that we specifically call on government to do is uh, provide federal funding and technical assistance for state coastal management programs and local government partners to plan, prioritize, and implement beneficial use projects um, by identifying opportunities to leverage cross-agency funding sources and promote cost-saving benefits. So, um, Coastal states, obviously, organization represents the state coastal management programs. Uh, why is it important for uh, the federal 
feds to help fund and provide technical assistance to these state programs to prioritize beneficial use and and how can we um, and how can they leverage cross agency funding sources to promote cost savings? Yeah, so this section identifies that in in advancing beneficial use of dredge material in regional sediment management, it's really critical to work with the state and territory coastal zone management programs. Um, and But also that in doing that, there is a need for investment of resources, specifically funding and technical assistance um, to make this work. So I'm um, going to kind of step back a little bit that under the Coastal Zone Management Act, coastal states and territories um, were... Uh, had established these coastal zone management programs, um, which have both responsibilities to preserve, protect, develop, and where possible, restore and enhance the resources of the nation's coastal zone. But they also have the regulatory authority to advance these goals. So for nearly 50 years, these programs have been managing our coasts through a state-federal partnership, using some federal funds, leveraging them with state funds um, to really advance coastal management issues. And they have a wealth of experience in coastal zone management and planning, coastal community and habitat protection, and coastal restoration. So CSO and ASBPA believe that tapping into this wealth of knowledge will really strengthen and leverage efforts by the Army Corps to implement regional sediment management planning and the um, for the beneficial use of dredge material. Um, we, we do think that this is really a great resource to tap into to really extend the length of the knowledge and resources. However, we do recognize that the coastal zone management programs are operating within limited budgets. And generally, most states and territories don't really have the dedicated funding for beneficial use projects. So these recommended policies set forth here would make beneficial use projects more accessible by establishing mechanisms for providing funding and leveraging existing funds to plan, implement, maintain, and monitor these projects. That's great, Rachel. Thank you. Um, I, I think it is when you talk about the sort of the different uh, entities involved in, in coastal management, obviously you need to bring in the state coastal agencies and as we identify in this policy, local government partners too. You know, if it's a, if it's a beach community that's trying to maintain and, and fund, uh, either entirely fund or provide the local cost share for a federally funded project, they're going to need to weigh in on, um, on how that sediment gets managed too. But when you, you just look at the economies of scale, the, the federal government is going to have just more funding available, more technical assistance. Um, you know, Tony, maybe I'll turn this to you if you want to comment on this. I mean, you come from, you, you've worked for years in Delaware, but it's, you know, a fairly small state and, and you know, it's a, a pretty impressive coastline for the, the beaches that it has, but it's not on the scale of Florida or California. What kind of technical um, capacity do you have in the state? I mean, I, I imagine it's less than what the core has, but did you have an opportunity to sort of work with the core on, on technical assistance for planning coastal projects? Yeah, very much so. Well, I had the fortunate op opportunity to work on both Delaware Bay Coast communities and Ocean Coast communities. What's interesting in this is if you look at the nation as a whole, uh, the what well, was we'll the original 13 colonies were pretty small states here on the East Coast. Um, the Delmarva Peninsula, in which Delaware lies, is comprised of three different states and three different management approaches. Uh, the coordination between the uh, coastal management programs is really quite good, um, particularly between Maryland and, and Delaware. 
Um, we, we have a disconnect, I think, sometimes with the beach management and the priorities and directions that are going with that. But the um, but but Rachel hits the, the high note is that the regional approach and using the coastal management programs, which integrate and and support each other very effectively, is a great tool to add to the core. The core it takes its assignments directly from Congress, and very often and probably too often, I'll put the edge on it. Uh, they are they are project by project and not necessarily directed to look at holistic regional approaches. That is changing, but uh, we have three projects on our ocean coast, 25 miles of Delaware coastline, three specific projects that are reasonably unrelated. And um, they uh, it took us in the state level to probably integrate those and look at the entire 25 miles of ocean coastline and and really manage effectively sand resources on those 25, but utilizing the three different projects and the bypass system at our inlet. Uh, but we put together that at the local level and came back to the core and said, although you don't get the benefits to be counted, all 25 miles, you're getting six miles of benefits. We see the 25 miles of benefits that come from the work that you do because of the natural distribution of sand you put on the beach. So broadening out that scope of valuation is incredibly important uh, overall. And I think that the coastal states organization working with their with their states is a great partner for ASBPA in moving this agenda forward. That's really interesting, Tony. The the idea that the core is, you know, by by statute, uh, responsible and funded by project. And so they you know, we try to get them to look beyond just the project, but that's how Congress funds them. They are funded to do, you know, a specific beach or coastal project, but that beach or coastal project might have tangible benefits even outside the the, the range of where it's it's being it's being done. And so that that's where you need to start providing, uh, you know, support and and this um, collaboration with the state level. And actually, uh, what you were talking about in terms of uh, Delaware working with Maryland leads me into my another point that we have in this in this policy, which is that uh, regional, what we call multi-state resilience studies that identify sediment needs and availability to enable optimal use of sediment resources. Um, and so this is, I think, we really are looking at this as, as, a, as the next steps to what the Corps has done with the North Atlantic Coast Comprehensive Study that it um, that it uh, was authorized and funded post Hurricane Sandy, and then the more recent South Atlantic Coast Study uh, that has was funded and authorized after um, Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria. I, I will mention specifically on the South Atlantic Coast Study, the Corps recently this this past fall uh, completed what they called the Sand Study, and Sand was some clever acronym. Um, but the idea was it was assessing where there is offshore sand source resources and where there will be needs uh, for placing sand over the next 50 years. So it's sort of looking at where you can get sand and where you need sand and trying to align them. And And the overall conclusion of that was that there is, there's plenty of sand out there, but it doesn't necessarily align to where it's going to be needed um, most efficiently. So that's, you know, it's it, when you're planning, particularly when you're planning long-term, 50 years or more, uh, it's important to have those, those assessments. Um, Rachel, I, I did want to turn to you. I know there's uh, been an authorization and plenty of work on a Great Lakes Coastal Resilience Study, although it is yet to be fully funded or, or even maybe I think it needs to be approved as a new start by the Corps. Did you want to talk about how the Great Lakes Resilience Study might be assessing sediment resources? 
Yeah, thank you. So the Great Lakes Coastal Resilience Study is a great example of a resilience study that would identify sediment needs and advance optimal use of sediment resources. This study would focus on assessing risks and vulnerabilities along the coasts in the Great Lakes, do inventories of existing coastal data, data and identify data gaps and identify measures, again, such as beneficial use um, to address coastal vulnerabilities. So CSO has been working with the coastal States in the Great Lakes, the Army Corps of Engineers, um, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, and other partners to try to advance this study and kind of work it out. We um, the study was authorized in the Water Resources Development Act for 2018, but it hasn't been uh, designated as a new start yet. So we definitely are recommending that that get kicked off the ground as a new start, as something that could really do a good deal of work on beneficial use resources in uh, the Great Lakes. And uh, I'll, I'll add that while a number of the coastal states in the West Coast on the Pacific Coast have done some pretty extensive sediment management, California has a sediment management working group. Um, Hawaii is really starting to look at how they can properly manage sediment, although it's it's obviously a bit more challenging given the um, the dynamics of being a volcanic island or volcanic archipelago. Uh, but I think ASBPA would, would like to see a more comprehensive West Coast um resilient study or west coast uh, sediment study again they, they face different challenges than they do on the east coast or the gulf coast or even the great lakes which is a very shallow water uh in the near shore you know there's a pretty steep drop off out on the west coast um but you know it's perhaps all the more reason why they need to figure out where their sediment is where they're going to be needing it so um tony any anything else to sort of wrap up on sediment management before we we call this a wrap yeah, I, I just want to give some uh, shout out and kudos to, to CSO. I, again, on back history, I was an alternate delegate to CSO for a good part of my career in, in um, the state of Delaware, which spanned almost 30 years. Uh, the Coastal States Organization has been a, a leader for a number of years now on what's referred to as marine spatial planning. And uh, we have seen that, uh, in, particularly in the mid-Atlantic states that I have most knowledge with in South Atlantic states, the, the extent of, of state control is limited. And then, of course, there are federal waters. But there are so many competing demands for nearshore uh, uses, fishery uses, navigation uses, uh, uh, technology uh, pipelines, uh, wind, wind energy uh, uh, transmission areas, any number of cabling. Uh, and on top of that, or mixed in with that, is also the, uh, the search that the uh, Department of Interior has been doing on uh, good sediment sources for supplying or resupplying the deficits that have occurred. And so looking at marine spatial planning and the, all the overlays uh, is very important and critical to, to sediment management overall. And it's becoming much more comprehensive and much more regional in its nature. Thanks, Tony. That's a good point. Uh, and certainly there's a, a number of agencies, uh, not least of which is BOEM, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, that is looking at how you can, wh where the sand is. Um, so I think we're about to wrap this section. Uh, I will do two quick plugs. If if you hadn't listened to the Capitol Beach podcast with Ryan Seeger, which was released um, in, in January, uh, we talk about the Water Resources Development Act that was passed in December 2020. And there's a big section on beneficial use of dredge material and regional sediment management. Uh, they implement a national policy for the first time ever. Um, so that's a good, uh, good podcast to hear a bit more about what's happened in the past couple months. And then uh, please tune in to our 
uh, upcoming seg- segments on the joint beach and inlet management policy from ASBP and CSO. We'll be talking about permitting. We'll be talking about federal funding. We'll be talking about development, where we should build and where we perhaps shouldn't build, and then talking about science. Um, as I think all of our listen- listeners know, uh, permitting is an important part of the coastal projects of, of maintaining coastal projects. I think everyone agrees that uh, we need to be protecting our environment and protecting our resources and protecting human health. Um, and it's absolutely critical that we do maintain uh, strong environmental protections as we do coastal projects. However, permitting can also um, take time and sometimes time is of the essence when we're doing coastal projects. And and if uh, if we're seeing, you know, as we start to see more rapid and, and uh intensified uh, climate impacts and sea level rise. Sometimes we can't put off projects for a long time if if we're going to be working on them. So uh, a real challenge to both maintain the environmental integrity of our coastline while also making sure that we can move critical projects forward. Um, Rachel, you want to give us a a quick overview of sort of what we're trying to accomplish in this uh, in this section? Yeah, thanks, Derek. So this section proposes policies that would both ensure that environmental protection standards for beneficial use projects are met um, by using the best available science, while also recognizing that there are things that could and should be done to promote promote timeliness and efficiency for uh, beneficial use project permitting. Great. And, uh, you know, in some ways, you mentioned beneficial use, but I also think there's aspects here of, um, you know, just shoreline restoration projects, ecological restoration projects on the coastline. Um, you know, we've all sort of probably heard experiences where we're trying to do some sort of ecological good, but it's, you know, there's there's some contrast with uh, maybe short-term damage that's being done. You know, you're trying to restore a system for the long term, but in the short term, you might be impacting a, a species or a plant or a, a recreational opportunity. Um, Tony, I want to turn it over to you. Uh, you know, I'll let you give sort of your overview on permitting, but I might tee that up with a couple of the bullets that we have in here. So um, the, the first two bullets in our joint policy talk about the need to uh, provide funding to the federal and state agencies to do coastal, uh, to do permitting issues, to do regulatory. So federal funding, uh, funding federal permitting agencies at a level commensurate with the permitting demand to enable efficient coordinated permit approval and enforcement, and then also providing dedicated and predictable funding to uh, state regulatory agencies to advance upfront coordination and meet project deadlines. So I'll I'll throw this open to you. Um, You worked for uh, many, many years as the shoreline and waterway administrator for the state of Delaware. Um, I'm sure you must have had times where you confront delays in federal permitting. Um, Can you talk a bit about sort of what the challenges are with permitting and then why it's important that both federal and state agencies get funded and are coordinating when doing coastal permitting? Sure, glad to. And and let me start off by saying that uh, among my colleagues nationally, and I've, I've worked with folks in almost every state, having been involved with ASBPA for a long time, uh, I'm I'm unique individually as the, the point that I, I not only ran a regulatory program, why I was uh, in within my group, we regulated uh, construction on dunes and beaches and had a setback line. So I I'm sensitized to the permitter side. I'm also sensitized to the applicant side as well, because we also had to get permits from sister state agencies as well as the federal government. So I, I've looked at looked at it very closely and been in the trenches on both sides of the issue of permitting. Um, so it gives me that perhaps unique position to, to sympathize with what the permitters have to go through. Um, 
And but but let's talk a little bit about the the process that has occurred over the years. And I'm, I'm working still in retirement, working on a few projects that are going through permitting. The windows of permitting uh, are, are to me exceedingly long in the subaqueous and wetlands lands. Uh, process, both at the federal and state level. I'm working at a project right now in Delaware specifically and talking at probably anywhere from eight to nine months to realistically get permits out is maybe as much as 10 months to get a permit out uh, from the process that we have to go through. That certainly should be improved upon. And I have experienced personally the lack of personnel available to process uh, the numerous uh, public comments that come in. Uh, there are often very legitimate concerns, but sometimes there's some arbitrary concerns that could be dealt with. Uh, personally, I have, uh, we, we launched one of the first beneficial use of dredge material projects with dredges that are owned within my group, where we did a, a, a wetlands uh, supplement where the wetland was not keeping up the sea level rise, advocated very strongly by uh, the wetlands managers within the state of Delaware, but then found opposition within certain individuals of the Corps who felt that we were just using this as an opportunity to fill up a marsh, and they personally dug in against it. So there are institutional issues as well as just the funding issues, but it is it is problematic. I think we need to have a, a higher level of acceptance from the permitting uh, side of things on these beneficial uses. They're environmentally advantageous. They're going to help uh, in, in a large variety of ways. So I think there's a lot of work to be done, but it's it's um, something that is glad to see included in this. And is it's something that's the focus of the joint uh, partnership going forward. Yeah, it's an interesting one. You mentioned the beneficial use on on a marsh. Uh, I've done a little bit of work on the uh, how we improve and increase thin layer placement um, as sea level rises. Uh, many marshes are going to get flooded out, are going to get inundated, and we'll lose the um, the values that are provided by marsh and wetland systems. Uh, at the same time, we're trying to dredge channels or, or bays for navigation purposes that would allow, um, you know, where we need to place that sediment. And so we can proverbially kill two birds with one stone by taking that sediment and placing it on that marsh. If we can do it properly, we should be able to do it in a way that helps those marshes accrete, build, you know, keep pace with sea level rise. So you should be able to maintain those navigation depths while at the same time um, protecting marshes. But you know, in the year after you put a, a, a mud or sediment on a marsh, it can often you know not kill the marsh, but often what looks like you know kill the marsh because um, you're you know you're you're burying it in a certain amount of mud, and then that marsh will regrow uh, stronger afterwards you're also looking at turbidity issues you know if you're putting sediment into a, a wetland system you're going to have runoff and so how do you deal with those issues so this is a you know a big challenge and i'll just throw one more thing in there which is you mentioned you know eight to ten months to to get a permit I, i've certainly talked to you know colleagues in in florida where they're looking at sea turtle issues coral issues and you know i think they'd love to have eight to ten months i mean i think sometimes it's taking them a year and a half two years to get their uh, their permits through and maybe even longer. So this is a challenge all over the country on a lot of different issues. Um, uh, Rachel, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. I'm going to sort of, you can certainly comment on this, but wanted to have you, uh, discuss the next bullet on, um, on our joint policy, which says have states serve as the centralized coordinator for state and federal permitting to create efficiencies through voluntary and innovative, innovative state-led permitting approaches. Um, 
So again, sort of feel free to comment broadly on permitting, but then also talk about uh, why we decided to say that states should be the the lead. Um, states should play the lead on both state and federal permitting processes. Great, thanks. So this policy really recognizes that beach and inlet management projects, um, including beneficial use and other coastal restoration projects, require a good deal of permitting and other environmental protection approvals. Um, And this can include state permits, federal permits through the Army Corps of Engineers, Federal Endangered Species Act assessments through U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service, and federal um, essential fish habitat assessments also through the National Marine Fisheries Service, among others. So with so many different permits and assessments through multiple entities, which as uh, Tony noted, can sometimes take forever, um, CSO and ASBPA recommend that uh, the coordination of all of the permits be centralized with a state or territory coastal zone management program serving as a central permitting coordinator. So under this framework, an application process could be simplified and have the state or territory program work directly with the federal agencies to ensure that the appropriate federal permits are obtained and environmental reviews are completed. This would make the process a lot easier for the applicants. It would promote greater state-federal coordination on the approval of beach and inlet management projects, and it would promote concurrent state and federal review, which should reduce the time it takes for project permitting approval. Um, And, you know, the state and territory coastal zone management programs are really uniquely poised to serve as a permitting coordinator. These programs were established as a state-federal partnership under the Coastal Zone Management Act and for nearly 50 years have been managing our nation's coasts. These programs have regulatory authority um, for issuing permits for activities within their state or territory coastal zone. They also have the authority to ensure that federal actions, such as federal permits for activities within the state or territory coastal zone, are consistent with the state's approved enforceable policies. Um, With these two key authorities, the coastal zone management programs really are well equipped to serve as centralized permitting coordinators. Thanks, Rachel. And you you threw one piece in there that I want to pull out and maybe have you talk a little bit more about. that state uh, and federal approvals are conducted concurrently to the maximum extent practicable. Can you sort of explain what that means and why that's important? Yeah. So instead of having basically a state have to go through the approval process, then sending it up to the federal agency to do an approval process, then sending it over to another federal agency to do a biological opinion, then sending it back to that agency to do the review again, this would be something that would be trying to bring all of those steps to be happening kind of at the same time. So once the state gets it, before they start doing their review process, they send it up to the federal agencies and they're coordinating across all of the different agencies that need to have their hands on this for doing uh, environmental reviews and environmental permitting so that everything is kind of happening more at the same time. And then it's being coordinated and going back just through the state entity back to the applicant. So the applicant isn't hearing um, you got approved on your biological opinion, but you didn't get approved on your permit over here, or you did get this permit, but you didn't get that one. It's a more coordinated effort and it should ultimately make things move a little bit quicker and just be a little bit more clear for the applicant. I think that's such a s- sort of obvious uh, solution to improving timelines on on permitting, um, but something that really needs to happen. But I think circles back a little bit to um, 
to the first point, which is the need for funding and funding permitting agencies at the level of commensurate, right? Coordination takes time and, and time is money. If you're asking a, you know, uh, a, a regulator, a biologist to sit in sort of at the beginning of the process, they need to be able to do that. And if, if they've just got a, you know, a stack of work, you know, papers a, a foot high to try to get to, they're just going to get to the ones at the top. But this actually means integrating them into the permitting process throughout. So, you know, these obviously fit together. We want them to be done concurrently. It makes logical sense, but that also might take a little bit of extra funding to do, um, to do the coordination. Uh, you know, I, this one I think is we have some pretty straightforward bullets in here. I, I, if you're interested, I'd certainly encourage you to go to the ASBPA and and or CSO website and check out the uh, full policy. Uh, we've touched on a couple of the high level bullets, but we have some sub bullets talking specifically about what National Marine Fisheries can do, what U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can do, and, and stuff like that. Um, Tony, Rachel, I'll sort of open it up to either of you if you have any sort of final thoughts on on permitting and how this policy, how it, these policies might improve the permitting process on coastal projects. Well, if I could just share one one uh, example from Delaware, and I don't know if other states are doing it, that the Philadelphia district uh, in their permitting uh, branch, number of quite a number of years ago, 30 years ago, decades ago, established what's called the Joint Permit Processing Group. Uh, and it's an opportunity, I think, once a month that the a variety of regulators, Corps of Engineers uh, in Delaware. It's the it's the wetlands and subaqueous lands group that does the permitting for that group. Uh, my old group, the beach preservation section, um, uh, what was, ended up being shoreline and waterway management, but the beach preservation group that does the regulatory work. Uh, the coastal zone management folks uh, looking at state consistency and uh, state historical affairs folks come together once a month and listen to projects that are being proposed. Uh, within the state's waters and wetlands and um, have a chance to, to talk about them with the applicant, which is very uh, informative to both sides as to what the project's about and how it could go forward efficiently. So I think that's a great model uh, of how there is coordination as a project is just being proposed and then can shepherd it through a little bit more quickly. Thank you so much for bringing that up, Tony. Uh, I think it's really important to note that there are a lot of good examples of um, how permitting is being done. You know, we often, it's easy to sort of point to the places where it's not working appropriately or where we feel like it could be uh, more efficient. But I also think it's worth noting that there are some places where it really is working nicely. And so, you know, we we are in a, a federal system where we have, you know, states and local communities uh, and you know, you've got local core districts. Um, and so not everyone is, is operating on the same, uh, at the same level. And so trying to make sure that, you know, the efficiencies that are working in one place can be translated and, and applied elsewhere. Okay, great. Uh, well funding is, you know, I've led off these segments by talking about, you know, what challenge we're trying to overcome. Funding is not a difficult one to explain. Uh, projects take money, uh, and, and that money is, um, needs to come from multiple sources. We talk about federal funding. Obviously, federal funding is um, matched in, in most cases by state level funding uh, or, or local funding, if you will, some some local cost share. Uh, but if we're going to manage our coast into the future, it's going to it's going to be an expensive endeavor. Um, one thing I think we do in this uh, in this policy we talk about is really having that predictable level of funding. And so this is not just providing funding, but it's actually providing funding before disasters, providing a regular and reliable source of funding. That's not to say that we shouldn't be funding coastal projects after a hurricane hits or after you see a major major erosion uh, issue. 
But that is certainly not the only way we should be funding them. And, and it's really, frankly, not the best way that we should be funding them. We need to be doing um, funding ahead of time so that we are prepared for storms and not just reacting to them. Um, so that sort of flows throughout. We, we have a number of bullets in here. And if you're interested in getting into the details, definitely check out ASBPA or CSO's website to see the full uh, policy. But we're going to talk about some of the things, some of the policies on here that are perhaps a little less obvious, right? Sort of requiring, uh, asking for more funding is something that, you know, we always do. It makes sense. Um, but I want to talk about some specific things about how that funding uh, comes that I think are a little as I said, a little less obvious. So I'll start off with Rachel. Um, and one of our policies is developing better cost share standard that reduces barriers for economically challenged and or otherwise disadvantaged communities. Can you talk about what this what this means and, and why we think it's important? Yeah, great. Thanks, Derek. So the current cost share for most coastal projects in um, is that the Army Corps covers 100% of the first $100,000 for feasibility studies. And then there's a 50-50 share after that. And then for implementation of projects, the federal share is 65% and the non-federal share is 35% with a federal project limit of $10 million. So for many economically challenged or disadvantaged communities, these cost share amounts are out of reach. At the same time, these communities may be some of the most um, impacted by significant coastal hazard threats. Um, and so CSO and ASBPA believe that it is necessary to allow for adjustments in the cost share standard to enable an ec economically challenged and other disadvantaged communities to access these federal resources for uh, beach and inlet management projects. We really applaud the Congress for taking meaningful steps in the direct in this in this direction in the 2020 Water Resources Development Act by defining economically disadvantaged communities, prioritizing resilience planning assistance for these communities, and establishing a pilot program for ten um, coastal projects, including. Uh, projects that can address flood control, beneficial use, erosion, storm damage protection, etc. in economically disadvantaged communities. And under this pilot project program, the federal share would be 100%. And that is great. However, we believe that a more permanent adjustment is necessary to enable these disadvantaged communities to access funding for these coastal projects, um, which is necessary to ensure that these communities are really effectively managing their coasts and able to respond to the raising number of coastal hazards that are happening in these communities. Thanks. And, and thanks for sharing the, the recent update in Word of 2020. Um, we talk about this a little bit in my recent podcast with Ryan Seeger uh, with the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee on, um, on Word. And I think it's an important provision. Obviously, a pilot project is, is important, but doesn't sort of fundamentally address the challenge. Um, Tony, I wanted to turn to you. You, you spent years as the uh, Shoreline and Waterways Administrator for the state of Delaware. Delaware has federal projects on its um, oceanfront beaches. Uh, those beaches, you know, maybe they're not the, the richest places in the world, but those those towns can afford um, the cost share that that's uh, the local cost share to match the federal requirement. But you also manage the Delaware Bay side, which I, my take, my understanding is probably doesn't quite have that same level of wealth uh, as as the oceanfront. Do you want to talk a bit about sort of the challenges um, for local communities in in how they can fund uh, provide that cost share for federal uh, for federal projects? 
Sure. The, the um, and and I'll, it's very it's going to be very Delaware specific. I think that that is my experience. Um, but you're right, Derek. Part of part of the issue from the Delaware perspective, and and it goes back decades and decades ago. We do have notable coastal communities on our ocean coast, um, Rehoboth Beach, Bethany Beach come to mind almost immediately. And there is, uh, there is the ability locally to cost share. The state of Delaware chose, and for reasons that escape me and, and, and philosophies uh, imposed probably long before I even started working for Denrec, which seems like an impossible long time ago, but it was based on our notable storm, the 1962 Northeaster, which started the work of the Corps of Engineers proposing a very comprehensive dune and beach system for our ocean coast. Um, at that time, the communities probably did not have the wherewithal, even on the ocean coast, to cost share the kinds of costs that the Corps of Engineers wanted to take on. So it was dedicated to be the non-federal partner to be the state of Delaware and has been that way ever since and has not been looked back on again. I think my colleagues in Maryland and um, in New Jersey have solved it with a little bit more local participation. It is a challenge to meet some of the benefit cost analyses on the Delaware Bay Coast, and those communities have up until very recently been discounted as not meeting the federal standard on the benefits of a project outweighing the costs of the project. So it would fall on locals to take care of their own problems as far as erosion and storm vulnerability. That said, I think that the thing that has been revealed to me over the years is that there's a tendency to wait to mitigate, uh, mitigate after the storm. We wait for the suffering to occur, or we wait for the loss of jobs to occur, we wait for the buildings and the infrastructure to be destroyed, and then there's an outpouring of attention and money that comes forward. The ratio that has been discussed very publicly many, many times that the $1 of mitigation uh, expenditures put in place saves $7 in eventual response and recovery dollars. The reason we don't get to that is that politicians, and I hate to say this in a very broad sense, but politicians shine when they can go in and recover from a disaster. They can pour money into earthquake areas and tornado areas and fire areas, and there's not a lot of appetite for the mitigation dollars up front. Part of the reason for that is that we don't do a good job after the event determining how much was saved when the project, a, a beach and dune enhancement system was in place. So I think we have to get our economics a little bit better than they have been and talk about after every single storm, how much was saved in, in the lack of the need to suffer and then respond to that. And that could help turn the corner a little bit, but it is still a challenge for local communities with, with no tax base and little income coming in to, to meet the challenges. So it goes to the county level, it goes to the state level, and then it goes to the federal level to seek help in, in, in paying for these mitigation projects. Uh, yeah, thanks, Tony. A good reminder about the need to prepare rather than respond to a storm. And I think this this specific policy really gets to the fundamental um, criticism of beach nourishment that we hear so often, which is the federal government is just paying to put sand in front of rich people's homes. But the way the system is set up was the federal government is paying to put sand in places where there will be the most you know, most protection for the for the buck, if you will, right? So you're you're paying to protect areas that have a lot of wealth behind them because, you know, if you're gonna pay a million dollars or ten million dollars, you want to protect assets that are well exceeding that. Um but what that means is you're leaving the places that aren't, you know, 
particularly wealthy, you're leaving those unprotected because it just doesn't meet that benefit cost ratio to put uh, to put a, a coastal project or a flood protection project in front of them. And so we need to sort of we encourage the core and, and, and actually this is going to be a congressional need, I think to get to sort of fundamentally rethink that how do we actually help protect communities that are unable to prov- uh, provide that protection for themselves as opposed to simply providing uh, coastal protection um, from the communities that are that are well wealthy so uh, a challenge and something that needs to be addressed and just just to add to that we talk about the physical structure a lot about the damages uh, the economic valuation processes that have gone on, and Jim Houston from ASBPA has done a lot of work on the economy of coastal communities and the economy, which is a favorable uh, uh, trade uh, benefit to, to the federal tax uh, dollar because of the money that's brought in through tourism and the jobs that it's created. We, we've looked holistically in Delaware at not just the infrastructure at risk, but also the number of jobs in the service industry that are 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 basically 100% based on a quality beach experience. And that is a major part of the uh, national economics too, is looking at how much service industry is providing through hotels and restaurants, uh, jobs and cash flow and taxation. And I think we could look at COVID and the impacts of COVID on hotels and restaurants nationally and come up with a similar scenario. So, you know, it, it's broader than just infrastructure. Yeah. And it's, to me, sometimes this gets almost to the fundamental challenge of the federal government is is the role to help support, uh, best support those who are you know unable to help themselves, or is it to really help um, drive an economic structure that that will create more wealth? Um, and I think it needs to do a bit of both. So, <coughs> um, excuse me. Uh, okay, let's pivot to the next um, the next bullet on here that we want to talk about. There's a number of bullets within our our beach and inlet policy talking about. Uh, sort of publicly prioritizing projects, talking about how to um, more efficiently uh, fund projects to, you know, make sure that things are publicly listed so that the communities can can see what is going to be funded. You know, all of those seem pretty straightforward. But I wanted to talk about this last one that we included, which is authorizing and funding Army Corps to plan and develop coastal adaptation projects for long-term sea level rise. So 50 to 200-year sea level rise. Um and the challenge here really is most core shore projects uh, are 50-year projects. So they've done the cost benefit. They've done the analysis. They've done the feasibility to say that these are going to be worthwhile projects for the next 50 years. But as, as we all know that, you know, 75 years from now, the shoreline is going to look very, very different than what it does now. And so, you know, if we're, if we're maintaining a, a coastline for the next 50 years, is there going to be a sudden drop-off? Is there going to be a sudden change? You know, are you going to go from having a regular you know, beach nourishment cycle to all of a sudden not having any beach nourishment because it's no longer affordable. So what we're really pushing here is trying to get the core to assess the long-term sustainability of some of these 50-year projects and start to think about how they can plan for a coastline that is more than 50 years away. And I know that seems challenging, but you look at, you know, some of the major American cities on the Atlantic coast and they've been here for two, three you know, cases of New York and Boston, 400 years. Um, uh, and, and so we need to be thinking sort of uh, begin to be thinking on those long-term scales. Uh, Rachel, is there anything you wanted to sort of jump in or, or add to this or anything you'd like to, to pull out on this one? Yeah. So I think that this policy really recognizes that we need to be looking forward at 
investing in managing our coast for the future or for future generations. So we have just big changes facing our coasts that include um, coastal storms, flooding, erosion, other coastal hazards. And we really just need to be thinking in a long-term perspective at how we want to address these to make sure that we have coasts for the future. And I think this also builds on some of the work that has been done in the past few years. So one of the points we talk about is um, using long-term inundation projections and a nationwide inventory of sediment needs uh, and availability to prioritize projects. Um, and so one of the things we talked about on a, on a previous segment here was the fact that um, BOEM and the Army Corps and the states have begun to do really, really good work in assessing where offshore sediment supply is. Um, so, you know, where maybe... 50 or even 20 years ago, there just wasn't a great understanding of how much sediment was available to coastline for restoration. We are starting to understand that. And now, now that we do understand that, it might make sense to start thinking about, okay, you know, we might have a sediment supply available for 50 years, but there's just not that sediment available past that point. And so maybe we should be thinking about, you know, where we need to prioritize restoration and where, you know, it might make sense to, um, to not prioritize restoration and start thinking about uh, other ways of protection, whether that's, you know, whether that's the the dreaded R word of, of retreat or, or even thinking about, you know, just sort of realigning the coast in certain places. And we'll get to this a bit more in the next section. Um, but uh, Tony, you've been, I mean, not, not to date you, but you've been doing coastal restoration and protection for, you know, 40, 40 years almost. And, and so you must have seen a lot of change in how, uh, how coastal management is done. Any thoughts you want to think about of how this how the core or, or other federal agencies might be able to start planning and funding work um, that would exceed a sort of fifty-year lifespan. Yeah, so the, you know, just from experience, the 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 we have a very difficult time at, at pretty much all levels of government in in realistic uh, preparation, more than just planning, but preparation for things on a decadal uh, time frame. Uh, uh, politicians are elected often for one, two, four, six-year terms. They, they sometimes continue to get elected and elected and elected, so it adds up. But the horizon for budgeting and expenditures and expectations of deliverables is often on very short time scales. Uh, if, if somebody elected can get uh, money for Florida uh, for a district and they can do it within this term, then it helps them get reelected the next time. That's, 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 that's the model that exists. And so when we depart from that and try to look decades out, it becomes more difficult. I, I look at two things very notably. Number one, the urban areas you talk about, Derek, uh, East Coast oriented. I'm looking at New York and Boston. Boston has just done a very comprehensive vulnerability study. It's scary when you look at projected sea level rises in the Boston area, the Boston Harbor area, and how much is expected to be flooded in a very short time horizon into the future, and what can you possibly do with that? Uh, on the Barrier Island area, which is the Delaware coast, we've done a pretty good job, I think, of keeping up with sea level rise as far as the beach and dune system. Now, Prior to development occurring, and this is my old geology hat, that's my, my foundation in edu education way back in Massachusetts 100 years ago, was in ge uh, coastal geomorphology. Barrier islands migrate under time, landward and upward, and they, they, they tend to build vertically as well as horizontally retreating to, to the inland a little bit. We are freezing the, the position of beaches in place. Uh, with an expectation that we can keep stacking that higher, 
our barrier islands will drown from the bay side, the back bay side. Every storm that deposits material sand in the interior of the barrier beach system is raising the elevation of that island as it has done naturally for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We now decide to reoccupy the road elevation, the entrance to the garage, the entrance to the house at whatever it was in the 1940s when it was originally constructed. We are putting or setting ourselves up for tremendous vulnerability from the estuary side or the back bay side of most of our barrier islands. These are really huge challenges. We're going to keep a beach in place, but there'll be nothing behind the beach and dune system because it's flooded uh, on on sunny days all over the place. We're seeing it in Miami. We're seeing it in New York, New Jersey. We're seeing it up and down the coast. Um, so these are huge challenges. So getting ahead of it and looking much more out into the future does give us some identity as to where we should be removing structures and relocating to safer grounds. And that's the harsh reality, I think, is, is what's ahead of us. Okay, great. Uh, thank you. Uh, again, really excited to have Rachel Keelan with CSO and Tony Pratt with ASBPA. And, and we're talking about uh, point number four or segment number four, development uh, along the coastline. Obviously a critical uh, policy component to how we manage our beaches and shores and inlets is, is where we place buildings and structures and infrastructure. Um, a lot of issues to go into here. Uh, Rachel, maybe you want to kick this off and, and talk a bit about what this policy is asking for at a very high level before we dive into some of the specific bullets. Yeah, great. Thanks. So this policy recognizes that our coasts are facing big changes with sea level rise, lake level change, and increasing coastal storm intensity, which really all drive additional coastal hazards, including erosion and inundation. This policy is recommending measures to responsibly plan for these increasing coastal hazards um, in coastal development to address issues um, existing high-risk coastal development and to utilize resilience of natural systems for infrastructure and coastal adaptation. Thanks, Rachel. And uh, you, you mentioned lake level change. This is probably something we should have uh, referenced in each of our different segments. But we do consider the coastal zone, um, as the Coastal Zone Management Act does, uh, we do consider uh, Great Lakes states. And right now, Great Lakes are facing um, some rapidly uh, rising levels, or at least some of the lakes are have been. Um, and, and some of the, the challenges that are all our coastlines are going to face with sea level rise have been seen sort of most immediately on the Great Lakes coast. And I think um, what we'll be talking about today certainly applies there. And I think some of the challenges that they're facing um, and maybe some of the policy solutions that might might help them uh, on the Great Lakes coast will be influential on the, the saltwater coasts too. Um, as you said, a changing environment, uh, coastlines are dynamic, and we need to reflect that in how we make policy decisions about where people should and should not build. Um, we got a, a six different bullet points in here. Each of them have some sub bullets. So if, if this conversation piques your curiosity, I'd encourage you to go to the ASBPA or Coastal States website and check out the full policy. Um, but the first policy that we are going to dig into is, uh, as a number of them are, relate to FEMA. And so I'm actually going to go ahead and, and read this out because it's a little bit complicated, but I want to dig into it and, and have Rachel explain this a little bit. So uh, what we recommend is that uh, FEMA should provide funding for relocation or removal of structures that are under eminent threat of collapse due to shoreline erosion and or tidal scouring, including by, we offer two per two pieces here, authorizing national flood insurance claims for structures under eminent threat and establishing a FEMA program to pay for relocation or removal of structures under eminent threat of loss due to coastal erosion. So um, 
Rachel, uh, what does this policy mean? How is this different from sort of the way NFIP works already and, and why is it important? Yeah, great. So this policy is really addressing an existing gap in um, addressing shoreline erosion as a significant coastal hazard. So while we have some things that are addressing coastal hazard, for example, the Army Corps, or not coastal hazard, but shoreline erosion, um, for example, the Army Corps can address erosion with erosion control measures such as seawalls and other hardened structures or living shorelines and natural infrastructure. And FEMA has hazard mitigation programs that can be used to implement some erosion control. These really, um, there's really no federal program to assist property owners who have properties that are experiencing um, severe erosion, including severe chronic erosion, um, such that relocation or removal of the property is really the safe safest and best option. Um, so think of a house that um, used to be set back from cliffs along a coast, but are now about to fall off of them due to chronic coastal erosion. Um, here, the burden falls solely on the property owners and the states to address them because there really isn't any federal program. So uh, the lack of a federal program to address this issue really leaves property owners in a sticky spot with a property that is unsafe, but they may not be able to leave it because they can't resell the property. Um, even if the property owner does leave and is able to absorb the loss of the property, the structure still remains and is an imminent hazard of collapse and basically into the ocean. So this policy is recommending that FEMA utilize and expand the existing national flood insurance program, which addresses uh, flooding issues, but, you know, doesn't cover um erosion at this point, but it it helps assist property owners in addressing um, flooding when it occurs on their property. Um, so here, we're basically suggesting that um, they also assist owners in who have erosion impacting their properties. Um, we're also really recommending that uh, FEMA establish a new program that would provide assistance for the relocation or removal of structures that are threatened by coastal erosion. Um, these two um, policies together in complement will enable property owners, many of um, which purchased their properties long before erosion was a threat, to really relocate their homes or other structures and to make or to make the hard decision to leave their property and have it removed without having to absorb the full cost of this. So ultimately, this will prevent owners from um, maintaining property, property until it's essentially falling into the ocean. Um, and property removal will enable states to um, prevent redevelopment on these properties that are experiencing high um, high erosion um, and implement better setbacks. So I think this, yeah, thank you, Rachel. This this really does address two issues, as you mentioned, two gaps, sort of an existing policy. One is uh, where there are homes that are not in flood zones, but are essentially threatened by flooding and inundation. So if you can think of uh, houses on on the top of cliffs or bluffs, you know, if you can picture those sort of iconic houses in California or or along the, um, you know, Lake Michigan shoreline. I was talking with Tony earlier and he, he reminded me that, you know, there's even some pretty high level bluffs out in, in uh, Cape Cod in Massachusetts. So it's not just a, a West Coast and Great Lakes issue. They're not in a flood zone, right? They're, they're very high elevation. Uh, but the scouring that waves and the shoreline do to, um, do to those cliffs and bluffs, uh, put those houses under threat. But since they don't have flood insurance, they don't have sort of a national policy to help them, uh, uh, relocate. The other piece that I think is really important here is, is authorizing claims for structures under eminent threat, not that have already been damaged. And so one of the challenges is if, if, uh, if, uh, if you have the flood insurance and you're 
building has been damaged or your, your house has been damaged, um, you can work with FEMA to get uh, money to relocate. You don't necessarily have to um, rebuild as it is. But the problem is that money only comes because it's insurance. It only comes after the damage is done. So if you've got a, a situation where you know, a, a retired couple is looking to um, leave, you know, leave their house and their houses in this, uh, you know, coastal erosion zone, um, but it has not been damaged yet, they can't access any funding from FEMA. So from so they need to sell that house and maybe the, the, new, the new family that moves in gets damaged a year later. Well, they don't want to move. So you've got a situation where the people that are interested in moving aren't able to access uh, FEMA funding for a house that you know that that is is definitely under imminent threat. So trying to address that challenge. Um, so uh, we'll keep running through some of these. We've got some a bunch of policies in here. We certainly uh, highlight the new building resilient uh, infrastructure communities, the BRIC program at FEMA, which we, we highlight is a really good new program to help uh, support uh, resilience programs and, and making sure that natural infrastructure is part of that. We talk about how FEMA can better align the community rating system credits to help manage uh, beach communities at a system better. Um, but the next one we want to talk about is actually goes beyond just FEMA. And I think this one is really important as we, we see a new administration come in. And that's requiring that all federally funded programs and all federal grant programs for coastal adaptation and relocation um, so these programs could be administered through the Department of Transportation, Housing and Urban Development. You know, these aren't your sort of traditional environmental or coastal agencies, but they do administer grant programs or, or provide federal funding um, for coastal infrastructure or coastal housing. We want to make sure that those programs are allowing for beach migration and allowing for uh, public trust, access, and making sure there's uses. So I, I'm going to talk a little bit about what this means, and I'll turn to Tony to provide some context for you know how this might play out uh, locally. Um, so this is the idea that you know if you have a coastal road, um, there may be money from Department of Transportation to uh, to help that road adapt to sea level rise. But if you simply elevate that road and the coastline, which had been abutting that road, now retreats, that coastline becomes literally underneath the road, and therefore you lose much of the value of that coastline, right? So if, if you've got a beach on one side of a road, you cross the road, you use the beach, but if that beach retreats to be underneath an elevated road, that beach loses a significant amount of its value. And so we want to make sure that agencies are thinking about what the value is of the coastline when they think about how to adapt the infrastructure in place. So certainly a complicated thing. Um, I don't think we have a specific uh, policy prescription for each agency. We just want to make sure that each agency is, is thinking about how they plan their adaptation to sea level rise and to inundation and to coastal storms um, in a way that maintains the the sort of the full value of, of the coastline because coastline is sort of a, you know, is, is a public uh, as a public right in in many states and and at least to some level uh, across the nation, Tony, a uh, big broad topic there. I would love your two cents. You've been working on um, coastal challenges on on the Bay Shore and the ocean side in Delaware for decades. Um, I'm sure this is something you've you've come across or at least thought about. So, any any thoughts on this issue? Yeah, it's it's, it's admittedly been very frustrating. I think over the years to see having worked closely with the Corps uh, and and secondarily with FEMA over the years after storms to mitigate against the uh, dynamics at the coast, dynamics being erosion of land, erosion of bluffs, 
uh, uh, episodic events that, that like Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Andrew, Hurricane Katrina, that, that drive the train on this because it's these major disasters when, when so much change occurs. And there is the impetus uh, to many of the, of the national uh, efforts to restore roads, restore bridges, restore uh, everything immediately to what it was the day before the storm. Uh, while, uh, and the communities too, you know, they've, they've zoned land to be, this is residential land, this is commercial land, and that's the expectation it'll stay in that, in that condition forever. Uh, we, we know that the dynamics of the coast, uh, these lands, through the dynamics of the coast, these lands are temporary. Uh, it may be on decadal or even century uh, timeframes, but they are temporary lands. And uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't bode well to say, that 100 years from now, South Bethany, Delaware, Oceanfront will still be in its same position. It, it, it probably will not be. 100 years ago, it wasn't the same as it is today. We just have to look back in time. So aligning, uh, and I, you know, the, the agency directives to say, understand that there is dynamic conditions at the coast, that there is change afoot, that there is temporary nature to these lands and that we should be planning for this, and I'm very much encouraged by the new administration coming in, the Biden administration, that there's going to be tremendous emphasis on climate change. On the one side, those elements, carbon specifically, that drive a warming climate, but also on the other side, the consequences of the warming that has occurred and the dynamic changes that will occur into the future because of, of what has already occurred and will continue to occur over the next several decades. So aligning the response mentality of, of all the aforementioned agencies is imperative. It really is because it's, it's got to change from what it's been and stop incentivizing reoccupation of lands that should be considered to be temporary. That's a yeah, great point. Uh, just the, the, I love that line, the reoccupation of lands that are inevitably or intended to be temporary. Um, we need to make sure that we are thinking about where the coast will be in 50 and 100 years from now, not where it has been. Uh, and that's probably something we always should have been doing, uh, even without climate change and sea level rise. The coast is a dynamic system, but certainly with sea level rise, it becomes even more imperative. Um, and yes, the idea that this is this is not just a, um, you know, coastal engineers, you know, this is more than just NOAA and, and Department of Interior and Army Corps working on it. This is going to be something that uh, Department of Transportation and, and human re uh, you know, housing and urban development um, and, and similarly at a state level, right? It's not just going to be your, your coastal programs. Obviously, the, the state coastal programs lead this effort, but they're going to need to integrate with um, with whatever their state transportation offices are too. Uh, Rachel, speaking of the states on this, um, we don't specifically have a call for states to address this broadly, but is there anything else you'd like to, uh, to share or bring up around how uh, state coastal programs can be working with some of these federal agencies to address uh, migrating uh, coastlines? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the coastal zone management programs um, are actively engaged in um, addressing coastal issues of all sorts. And so, and they're actively working with the federal agencies. So I think that they're definitely the right people to be on tap to be working on this issue. Um, and I, I'd, I'd add to that, I think a lot of them have uh, either are or have planning departments. I know one of the past presidents of Coastal States Organization, Leo Asuncion, was actually the, the head of the, the planning office and planning was more than just coastal planning. It, um, although in a state like Hawaii, 
it's hard to imagine that there's much planning that's being done that isn't somewhat related to coastal. This is our, our fifth policy is about research and science. You know, at a real high level, I mean, this one seems kind of obvious, but why is it important that there is federal policy and federal funding for coastal uh, research and science? How does that actually help coastal management? Yeah. So basically in this section, ASBPA and CSO are really recognizing that in order for beach and inlet management um, and really all of our previously discussed policies to be effective, they must be based on the best available science. So the recommended policies under this section are really focusing on ensuring that we have the right science and data, that we're maintaining long-term data sets, and that um, science and data is readily made available to help inform wise beach and inlet management. It's really necessary that we have the best science to make, make our decisions. Yeah, I, this one is almost, it seems silly to almost try to explain why is science important? Well, of course, science is important. How are you going to make decisions based on reality if you don't have good science? But uh, it's something that we you know need to address. And, and it's something that the federal government uh, needs to be supportive of. So we have a couple bullets in here. This is probably our shortest. We sort of um, lump together sort of the need to collect data, the need to do modeling and uh, sort of analyze that data. We talk about mapping um, and then the ongoing need to further uh, further science by funding research. So those are sort of the four broad topic areas we include in this um, in this section. But I wanted to, to follow up with Rachel. There's one that's a bit more detailed, um, and it sort of focuses on mapping. We talk about the coordinating and implementing efficiencies across federal, state, and local beach mapping programs, and then we identify how that can work. But uh, can you talk a little bit about why it's so important to sort of coordinate and implement efficiencies across the multiple uh, uh, jurisdictions at sort of federal, state, local level on mapping, and and if if um, applicable, other other data analysis. Yeah, great. So this policy seems pretty simple, but it's actually a really big deal. Um, there's just so much data out there to inform mapping, um, but it's really all over the place and in different agencies and on different platforms and on different scales. Um, this can create several issues, including that people really don't know um, where to get the data for maps. Um, they don't know how to access it. Different entities are um, investing resources to collect the same mapping data. Um, and then also just it's not at the right scale for what coastal management decision makers need. So ASBPA and CSO is really making several recommendations in this area to address these issues. First, we're really recommending that national and regional data portals um, that have a lot of these maps contain up-to-date data and comprehensive data sets and layers, mapping layers. So I know this sounds like a no-brainer, but often they don't. In particular, many of the data portals have maps, but they don't have a method for downloading the raw data. Um, or they have map, but the um, they are all in different tools. So they'll have multiple different tools that have different layers, but then you can't put them on top of each other. So you can't see intersections. And then some of them lack critical information for decision making, such as like the exact coordinates of specific features. So there's a whole bunch of things that are kind of missing in that um, that we really need to try and address. Second, um, we are recommending increased coordination to ensure that federal agencies, states, and local communities are not duplicating efforts or expending efforts in areas that are not really needed. Um, 
here we believe it's critical that federal agencies in particular work with states and local communities to identify what data and mapping tools they need to ensure that the data and tools that they are that the federal government is developing are at the right scale to address the on-the-ground coastal management issues. Um, this really taps into our third recommendation, which is for technical support and funding to support states and local communities to help them develop high-resolution models based on fine-scale data sets to help them inform their coastal management needs. Really, national-level um, data and tools frequently are not targeted enough to be used on this state or local scale. Um, and But then the states and local communities, even if they have the data, might not have the expertise to develop robust coastal models. So um, federal investments in this area will help ensure that the states and local communities have the tools they need um, for wise beach, inlet, and coastal management. Thanks, Rachel. So we, we talk a lot about throughout this um, policy uh, and throughout all the policies we put forward, we, we make recommendations about what the federal government can do, how it can work with the states. Um, where do you think this is being done well? I mean, I, I think about the digital coast and, and certainly there's improvements that can be made, but it seems like the digital coast is a good step towards bringing all these geospatial uh, data and, and mapping tools together, um, starting to work together to create uh, a, a, a usable public interface. What do you, what's your thought on digital coast? Are there other areas that you think are doing well in terms of making mapping accessible? Yeah. So digital coast is really great. There's definitely lots of, um, very good data sets and mapping tools in there. There is a little bit of a challenge with some of it being a little disjointed, but most of it is very, very good. Um, we also have, um, another good federal level tool is the marine cadaster, which um, I know is definitely fed into with the Digital Coast Partnership. Um, so, you know, that one has a lot of layers, lots of data that is able to be downloaded. Both of them are really great. Um, but there, there is always room for improvement. And we definitely would like to see some improvement in some of these areas. Um, and, and some of them don't have all of the uh, state level data and stuff as well. So we'd like to see a little bit more um, level, um, local, state, federal level integration on data. I'll also make a little plug for the U.S. Coastal Research Program here. Even though they don't focus on mapping, it's really more about original coastal research. Um, it is uh, similarly geared towards trying to bring together the, the research community with the coastal management community, bring together federal researchers with local coastal managers to make sure that um, the research, the original research that's being done by academia, the Army Corps, etc., is answering the questions that local uh, coastal managers really need. So I think we're looking at the same kind of thing, whether it's mapping, whether it's research, whether it's data acquisition, making sure that um, the, the research data mapping that's being done is usable and presentable and at the level and scale needed by people who are making uh, coastal decisions. So good plug for U.S. Coastal Research Program there. Okay, I'm going to turn to Tony for the next one. And this is, you know, we sort of went a little bit into the weeds on the, the mapping side. Uh, taking it back a bit, um, we also call for uh, the need to use robust data on physical coastal conditions to improve localized lake sea level elevation modeling, coastal flooding and storm surge modeling, other modeling needs to inform beach and inlet management decision making. So this sort of builds on some of the other things that we've been talking about. Um, but Tony, you worked in the state of Delaware on coastal management for um, you know decades and, and have been involved with ASBPA also for a long, long time, uh, which brings together the you know the modelers that the engineers the technical folks with the coastal managers can you talk about the value that 
I mean, robust data and localized models uh, play for a coastal manager who's trying to make the best decisions for their coastline. Yeah, happy to do that, Derek. Um, and Rachel makes some great points as to the value of, of all the research that's going on and how it's accessible. And that really segues into where frontline managers like my staff and me over the years uh, depended upon uh, updated, uh, most uh, accurate data we could we could get to look at vulnerabilities, to look at at uh, any number of, of data points. It's just not coastal vulnerability. Oftentimes it's values and decision making that's wrapped around values of vulnerability versus uh, uses and expectations. Uh, in order for us to carry out our work at, at the frontline manager uh, position, uh, credibility is, is extremely important. You know, if we are going to stand before a, a public audience um, whether they're elected officials or, or the people who live in these <clears throat> affected communities, uh, the credibility, we have to believe what we see. We have to provide, be providing the best uh, science-based data and information we possibly can. And at the end of the day, uh, what we're looking at is, is taking it forward for community involvement, community investment, uh, and investment at, at levels of government, and also uh, investment by private sector into resolving the problems and taking the challenges head on. Data is what sells this at the end of the day. We are looking at, at constantly of the local, county, uh, state, or federal funding to implement any number of the programs we've talked about here today uh, over the last few uh, sessions uh, talking about how we implement any of these uh, corrective actions, whether it's moving away from the coast, whether it's uh, nourishing beaches and rebuilding dunes, uh, studying uh, how, how we can um, withstand uh, future storms, and anything requires an investment. And we're competing at every level, at the, at the local, the state, the county, the federal level, for other programs just as important. It could be transportation programs, it could be educational programs. So we need to stand in line with well-based decisions, well-based um, uh, solutions to the challenges we have that are based on the data we can collect. And there's a tremendous investment within the private sector, insurance companies and hotel, motel chains, any number of, of elements that are looking at how vulnerable they are and the data informs that as well. So it's critically important to everything else we've talked about in the series of, of, of presentations. Yeah, I think that's a great point of bringing bringing together not just the sort of the public interest, the public decisions that are being made around this, but private decisions. You mentioned hotel chains, right? They're going to be thinking about where they invest. I mean, a hotel is going to be building on the coast for maybe 30 years. Your home might be built for 50 years. Uh, I'd, I'd also add in the military. I mean, you look at um, some of the work that's being done, uh, the, the Coast Guard would need and, and the research that's being done by um, the Navy, uh, you know, some of the core tenants of, of coastal engineering came out of came out of military needs too. So uh, really bringing in public, private, uh, military, industrial, there's just so many different facets of the coast. Something you hear all the time on ASPN, there's all these different needs and, and all of them are based on having good coastal research and data. Um, well, I wanted to thank the listeners who have uh, made it through all five segments. You guys are uh, policy experts now. We offer you a honorary um, well, I don't think we can offer you an honorary PhD, but you know, close enough. Uh, you, you, you're now experts. Hopefully this has also piqued your curiosity to read the ASBPA CSO uh, Joint Policy on Beach and Inlet Management. Um, if you're just tuning in at this final episode, 
Uh, we hope you go back and listen to some of the other policies that we've talked about, sediment management, permitting, funding, uh, development. Um, I think they're all really good conversations. Uh, and since this is our final episode, I do want to take my uh, moderator's prerogative to ask our uh, panelists, Rachel and Tony, about their favorite coastal spot. We all work really, really hard on the coast and work, especially working on policy. You spend a lot of time behind a computer or in a boardroom or a conference room. So uh, where do you get out and get rejuvenated? What's your favorite coastline? Tony, I'll start with you. Um, I'm also going to share, I hope it's okay with our listeners, uh, that you are a, a photographer and, and frankly, some of the most beautiful coastal photos I have ever seen are some of the ones that you've taken. Um, and I know you've taken photographs across the nation. You're from Delaware, but you've, you've had a chance to visit some of the most beautiful beaches, at least in the US, if not the world. So where's your favorite, where's your favorite coastal spot? Well, I'll take up that that uh, that shameless plug you just provided me an opportunity. So, TonyPratt.com, look me up. You'll see my web, my my uh, my photography, and also I'm on on Facebook and and uh, others. But so I, I you know I, I live here in Delaware. I'm from Massachusetts originally. I have a lot of favorite beaches all over the country. I'm going to name two. I'm going to take the liberty to name two. Number one is Fenwick Island State Park in Delaware, which is right north of Ocean City, Maryland, in the town of Fenwick. Um, it's Beautiful, clean water. It's warm uh, days in the summer, and that's where I kick back with a with a book, and a nap, and a lunch, and and love that. I, I will say I was out, had the chance to go to Oregon last uh, summer, not this past summer, two summers ago, and loved the Oregon coast tremendously. So I'm going to name a very specific beach there. It's called Otter Point State Park. Um, I'm not going to tell you exactly where it is because I don't remember what town it was closest to. It was, uh, but but Otter Point State Park, it's a bit of a hike down from the parking area, down a very steep uh, a cliff front. Spectacular, beautiful, lovely area. Uh, the West Coast experience and the East Coast experience, my favorites. Lovely. Thank you so much, Tony. Rachel, how about you? Where's your Where's your favorite coastal spot? Where do you go to get rejuvenated and, and ready to keep fighting the fight in the halls of Congress and the administration? Yeah, so I am on the East Coast currently. So when I like to get out from here, I definitely like to hit the Delaware beaches as well. So Bethany, Rehoboth, Dewey Beach. But um, really, I actually am from Seattle and um, I lived in on the Puget Sound and Shulshul is a beach that's there that just has um, the most amazing sunsets looking out over the Olympic Peninsula it you see the sailboats out it's just gorgeous and I miss being there all the time you can do uh, bonfires on the beach etc so that that would be my favorite west coast spot fantastic two uh two plugs for Delaware and the Pacific Northwest we've had folks say all over the country but certainly those in D.C. I know get to Delaware a lot because it's nearby and, and the Pacific Northwest is incomparable. So thank you, Tony. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you to all our listeners. I hope you learned something. I hope you found this fascinating and uh, look forward to bringing you more Capital Beaches in the future. Thanks all. Thanks, Tony.